Number 1. Psalms. First quarter, 2024. John Pauline. Bob Kern, all the way from Kansas, is going to offer our prayer. Thank you, Bob. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity for all of us to gather together here electronically uh, from spots all over the world. And we know that your Holy Spirit is not limited by uh, such locations. We would ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to all of us, uh, help us with our discussion today, help us to be of some use to those who listen to this later on. And thank you again for all the hard work that Dr. Pauline puts into presenting these things. Amen. This is the first in a new series of 13 studies on the Psalms, biblical book. And the lesson begins actually with a quotation from Luke. In Luke chapter 24, 44, and 45, Jesus is saying to his disciples, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. So it seems to me that you can read the Psalms at two different levels. At the first level, the Psalms are an expression of the faith of Israel. The Hebrew scriptures have a whole lot of stories, a lot of history, a lot of grand proclamations and the prophets, etc. But in the Psalms, you get a glimpse of the individual lives of ancient Israelites. How did they actually practice their faith? How did they go through a day and deal with the challenging questions and challenging issues? So the Psalms are a window into the faith of Israel. But then Jesus tells us they're also a window into him. In other words, the Psalms give us a sense a, a little bit. He says, they testify of me. And he often quoted from the Psalms. And so Jesus saw the Psalms as a major background to who he was and God's purposes for him. So as we go through this quarter of studies on the Psalms, we want to keep in mind that they can be read at two levels, and we can ask questions about, well, the psalmist, you know, if this is David, uh, what was going on at the time when David was around? Is he referring to anything? But then at the same time, consider the question, what do the Psalms tell us about Jesus? And of course, ultimately, what do they tell us about God at an even bigger level than simply God's relationship to Israel? So let's go to the first item in your handout. And there it says, the Bible is a book of many genres. It's full of stories, poems, songs, jokes, riddles, prophecies, and word plays. There are lots of puns, especially in the Hebrew. It's just littered with them, and you only pick those up in the Hebrew. I mean, what is a pun? Uh, just give you an example. One of the most common examples in the English language is what is black and white and red all over? Okay, that's the question. And it immediately trips you into okay, white and black and red are colors. But in the pun, the word pronounced red can be spelled differently and can mean reading, it's a verb for reading. So the answer to the question, what is black and white and red all over in you know years past, would be the paper newspaper. It's black and white, and it's red all over, you see? Now, that's a pun. It's where two words sound the same, but they actually mean something very, very different. And that's usually the basis for a lot of jokes as well. So the Bible has a very subtle humor going on throughout, especially in the Hebrew language. Scholars have said, that in the Old Testament prophets, God almost always speaks in poetry. I think some say always, but I haven't checked that out. So let's say almost always. So when God speaks, God doesn't talk like I'm talking now. God talks in poetry. Fascinating. There is some evidence that Jesus talked the same way. Joachim Jeremias, a famous German scholar, was so sharp in the ancient languages, he translated Matthew back into Aramaic, the language that Jesus would have been speaking when he walked this earth. And when he translated Matthew into Aramaic, Jesus' sayings were poetic. 
They were full of puns and riddles and memorable little sound bites. Jesus spoke in a way that was hard to forget, easy to remember. So it seems to me that the Bible is maybe not entirely what we've made it out to be. In many ways, it's a different book than just a manual of life for today. So question I want to open up with and for you to consider, what does all that tell us about God? Remember, the Bible is expressing what God intended it to. So what do you make of the fact that the Bible's full of poems and riddles and jokes and puns and stuff like that? All right, Bobby Joe is going to take this one on. Go ahead. I love this question. And it reminds me of the verse in John 1.14, where the word is made flesh and dwells among us. So God is introduced as word. And if he's introduced as word, it makes it seem to me as though he cares about words, words in all sorts of forms, whether they come in poetry or jokes or riddles or stories, he cares about those. And I wonder if when at creation, he was bending over Adam and he breathed into him the breath of life, he was not breathing into him that essence of words. He was making us word masters, word artists like himself. Well, I would say that was worth the price of admission for me today. So thank you for that. that. I mean, you covered a lot of ground there, and it's really profound. And I think it nails to a strong degree what the question was intending. Thank you. Lou? To me, I think it also means that it covers a broad spectrum of human beings, where you always say God meets us where we're at. And different people hear differently. And some hear through humor, some hear to really get what's behind the message. And so I just think that that's part of God's reaching out to everybody where they're at and at whatever form reaches their heart. Mm, excellent responses to the question. And number two, it says the word Psalms is from the Greek Old Testament. So in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament Bible, this book is called Psalmoi. That's where we get the English word Psalms. The main purpose of the Psalms were to praise God. They were written in Hebrew poetry by different authors from the ancient world. So the Psalms reflect the situations and the literary styles of their times. I'd like to bounce off what Lou just said and the idea that there's three basic options for looking at the Bible. All right, one option is. In the Bible, we meet God where we are. And that's the so-called more liberal left-wing position. It's the idea that the Bible is not so much a revelation from God as it is a revelation of the best human minds thinking about God. In other words, the greatest human beings who ever thought about God put a book together, and that's awesome. And we definitely should make it a major point of study because this is as good as it gets. Okay, so the one idea is that in the Bible, we are meeting God where we are. Various brilliant writers who had a walk with God describe their experience with God, and that's as far as it goes. The Bible does not have revelation from God as such. All right, that's one option. A second option is God meets us where he is. God meets us from the standpoint of God. In other words, the Bible is God's language. The Bible is God's direct words, unmediated. You know, it's exactly the words that God is speaking, and it has sort of a universal import. Every word of this is valid for every time and every place. All right. And that's a position more on the opposite extreme side the idea that in the Bible, there's no human element at all. But this is straight from the throne of God. And boy, if you can't apply it to your life, that's a sad situation. Let me apply it for you is often what comes along with that. You see? So the more conservative extreme is to take every word of the Bible as directly from God. And based on how I read that, I can hammer everyone else over the head with it. When you read the Bible, it doesn't take long to discover that Neither of those positions really expresses what is happening. That, as Lou said, 
God meets people where they are. This is God speaking. The Bible is what God wanted it to be, but it is God speaking to us, speaking our language, using our idioms, adopting our culture. Look at Jesus. Did he come as a 21st century American or as a 19th century Chinese person or an Italian in the Renaissance? You see, God did not choose to come down and take on anything that was irrelevant. Jesus was a Jew of Galilee, born nearby, but raised in Galilee. And he experienced life and experienced culture the way Jewish Galileans did. So when God met us, he did not meet us where each of us are today. He met specific people in specific contexts at another time and place. And so that's the big hermeneutical question. You know, hermeneutics is about how you interpret the Bible. Because if you believe that the Bible is the best human effort at understanding God, you will treat it differently than if you believe every word is directly out of the mouth of God and speaks to all times and places. Uh, both of those are extreme positions. And what actually is the case is that the Bible came to specific people in specific times and places. And then our goal is to take what we find in the Bible, couched in the language of that time and place, and seek to understand how God would have us apply uh, those things for today. So picking up the Psalms and going through them verse by verse, it's going to be pretty exciting because we can read them at those two levels. First of all, what God was saying to and through specific individuals in the scriptural times, specific individuals among the Israelites. And then also recognizing that these are the Christian Bible. And that means that they tell us in some ways about Jesus, who tells us about God. So the Psalm study is going to be a very interesting one, I think, because it will force us to break away from some of the comfortable ways we've read the Bible in the past and see if reading the Bible the way it was originally intended might bring a whole flood of insight into how we can walk closer with God today. So from your own reading of the Psalms in the past, what reflections would you have? What do the Psalms mean to you? What are some of the different kinds of Psalms that you have run into? in the past. And this is not a test, you know, a right and wrong. It's simply saying, all right, from what you've experienced in the Psalms in the past, uh, how do they speak to you? What are some surprising types of Psalms that you've run into? Anyone want to give that a shot? All right, we have Arthur coming to us all the way from across the Atlantic. You know, when I read the Psalms, I'm amazed at the level of transparency and honesty that comes out from the heart of the Psalms. They are relatable to me because there's been times when maybe I feel like God is not present, like I'm trying to find him and I cannot find him. Maybe there are days when I'm so angry at my enemies and maybe I'm even wishing God could do some evil upon them. And I find that I read that as well in the Psalms. And for some reason, though, we get to hear positive Psalms, maybe from the pulpit at least. No one takes time to speak about maybe, God, I want you to kill my enemies or whatever. No one talks about that. We often just talk about those Psalms, uh, maybe that are praising God, talking about his goodness and all his positive attributes. But at least for me, I find that whoever was writing is very human and they are going through real emotions and somehow they manage to experience those emotions and direct them to God, direct their frustrations to God as well. And it would appear that God is okay with that, okay with the psalmist being honest about how they feel about their neighbor because anyway, God knows about everything in our hearts anyway. So we don't need to pretend to him. So I think Graham 
once talked about how sometimes we may say, oh God, how I love my neighbor, when in our hearts, we really hate them so much. And God would rather have us say exactly what we're feeling about our neighbor, then it helps us maybe to heal and as well as to admit where we are at. And then God can start to heal us from our point of admission. Thank you very much. So you are saying then there are prayers we're willing to think that we would never say out loud. And maybe one of the things we can learn from the Psalms is that articulating those thoughts, putting them out there, might actually be a way of driving them out of our minds if that's what needs to happen. If you keep it in, it tends to fester and grow and, and, and get worse. And the psalmists apparently were able to just blather it all out. And in so doing, perhaps found healing for their own souls as well. It's not usually good to keep things inside. So the Psalms are very unexpected and very exciting. Terry? I see in the Psalms that all of our feelings and all of our frustrations are valid and validated. And that uh, I think that the problem only comes with where you just said, when things are kept inside and they fester, or if we were to try to exact vengeance on someone we consider our enemy, that's where the problem comes in. But our own feelings, our own reactions are all valid and they're all validated by God. And God is big enough and strong enough to take and absorb the intensity of our feelings without penalizing us. And, you know, one of the dangers of making a public speech and you're saying, I hate so-and-so, I hate them, I hate them, I hate them. That might be therapeutic for you, but it could be very damaging to others, you see. But the beauty of what you were saying, Terry, is that God can absorb all of that and no harm is done because God is quite able to handle it. It's not going to disturb him in any way. He already knows, you see. So being able to articulate in our prayers, make the prayers more authentic, but they also make them therapeutic in a strong way that might not be possible otherwise. So one thing to keep in mind is that many of the Psalms are personal. It's a specific individual who is speaking to God in a mode of prayer most often. But some of the psalms were actually written for public worship. They were written to be sung in the temple. And knowing the difference between them sometimes can be helpful. I want to give you several psalms which tells us about the backdrop a little bit. Psalm 61 and verse 1 is one of these that tells us how it is to be performed in the temple. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. All right, what comes before that? To the leader with stringed instruments of there David. You there you go. That's it. Yeah, that's what I was aiming at there. In other words, there's a leader, evidently a choir, and there's stringed instruments. So this is not a private prayer. Psalm 61 is uh, designed for use in worship, in a concert, even. Psalm 9, verse 1 is another one that has an interesting introduction like this. To the leader, according to Muth Laban, a psalm of David. All right. So it's according to, what did you say? Uh, well, I said Muth Laban. Mm -hmm. Okay, which is some Hebrew term, right? And doesn't mean anything to us. But evidently, according to, that's how a musician would introduce a tune. So, all right, this psalm is going to be sung according to this background. You'll see that in the hymn book. The Seventh-day Adventist hymn book often adopts a tune from some other hymn and applies it to the one that you're going to sing. So it gives the tune by which that psalm is to be sung. And then chapter 8, the opener, is interesting. To the leader, according to the Giddeth, a Psalm of David. All right. According to the Gittith. Uh, once again, there's something that doesn't mean anything to us, but that language in the Hebrew, that word root, goes back to Gath. And if you may remember, Gath was one of the five cities of the Philistines. 
And apparently the Gittus, possibly a guitar <laughs> or something like that, but the Gittus was an instrument that was invented in Gath. So a Philistine instrument <laughs> is put in use in worship. And we could ponder perhaps the implications of that, except that by the time David would be singing it, the Philistines were still a power, but under David's rule, you know, David became the ruler of the Philistines during the course of his career as a king, as he conquered them. So perhaps it comes after the time when Gath is part of Israel. But if not, it would be fascinating that David would have adopted a Philistine instrument, perhaps while he was among the Philistines. If you remember, he was in a little village south of Gath that was given to him by the prince of Gath. And for a time, he was actually defending the Philistines with his little band hiding there from Saul. So there's dynamic backgrounds that we sometimes know a lot about, sometimes not so much. But the Psalms are often grouped. Psalm 120 to 134 would be what are called the Psalms of Ascent. And if you can picture Israel, Israel on the west side has the Mediterranean Sea, so that's sea level, right? On the east side of Israel is the Jordan Valley, which is below sea level. Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. That's way below the Salton Sea in California. The Dead Sea is about 1,200 feet below sea level, lowest place on earth. So you have this deep, deep valley. In the middle is a spiny ridge, and at the peak of that ridge is Jerusalem. So pretty much wherever you're going to Jerusalem from, you're going to be climbing in the last part. So these are songs of ascent. When people were traveling to the temple for one of those annual feasts, they would sing these psalms, 120 through 134, as they were ascending geographically into Jerusalem. Psalms 113 to 118 are the Egyptian psalms, so-called, because these were sung as part of the Passover celebration in every home in ancient Israel. Psalm 145 to 150 are the daily psalms, the daily Hallel, they were called, which means the daily praise. And these were songs that were sung every day in a worshipful Israelite life. You had the David collection, about 74. You have the Korahite collection, about 12 of the psalms. You have the Asaph collection. I think Arthur mentioned that earlier, about 11 of those psalms. So you have a variety of different types of psalms. And then I raised the odd question in number four, who wrote the psalms? And we have a listing there this time, Terry. I'd like you to read the intro to each of these as well. You're at Psalm 8-1 already, so you can go ahead with that. To the leader, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. All right. So this is a psalm of David. And David, I think, in one place is called the sweet singer of Israel because he wrote so many songs and they were so popular. 42 and verse 1. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. All right. And who wrote that one? To the leader, a maskil of the Korahites. All right, Korahites. Some translations say the sons of Korah. So probably, I think scholars would suggest that this was a group of musicians in the temple. Uh, perhaps at the time of David, perhaps at the time of Solomon, or even a little later. And you have another group like that in Psalm 75. To the leader, do not destroy. A Psalm of Asaph a song. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks. Your name is near. People tell of your wondrous deeds. All right, so Psalm 75, again, it says, do not destroy. That's the tune that this is supposed to be sung to. And then this is a Psalm of Asaph. And Asaph is understood to be a court musician in the house of David, and perhaps a little bit after that. But they're not the only ones that writes psalms psalm 89 1 a maskil of ethan the ezraite all right bet you haven't heard of him put that one in your next trivia quiz on the bible who is the ethan the ezraite famous biblical author he's one of the authors of the bible 
And what book of the Bible does he appear in? That might be a good question to throw at people. But then comes somebody a little better known in Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. So in Psalm 90, you have a psalm that was written by Moses. There's lots of emotions expressed in the psalms. I think several of you have mentioned them, Arthur in particular. There's hope, there's praise, there's fear, there's anger, there's sadness, there's joy. The question I want you to respond to, do you find the fact that many of the psalmists express the same kind of struggles we experience today, do you find that encouraging or discouraging and why? The Bible's full of these flawed people. Does that encourage you or discourage you? Iris? You know, there is so much talk about diversity as if humanity was just so distinct. And I think the Psalms in some ways remind us that at the core of the human experience, there is so much that transcends times and cultures, you know, that we have in common. <laughs> it, it's just part of the human fabric, part of the reality of living in a broken world that is still testifying to the goodness of God because good is still there, right? And yet there are also the pits of human experience. And so in some ways, you pointed out that some of this was directed to distinct individuals or reflected the experience of distinct individuals. And yet it is an invitation for us to resonate. And especially with some of the tougher experiences of life to see there is a solidarity. <laughs> I'm not alone. I'm not the first person to experience disappointment or whatever um, raw emotion I may be processing I am in good company. And then maybe one last aspect in the Psalms, even sometimes within an individual Psalm, it moves from one emotion. And that may be the starting point. And then as the Psalmist goes through the reflection, it doesn't end at the same emotion. There's a progression there. Hmm. I'm really fascinated by what you said here. The idea that reading the Psalms in the light of human diversity and that you see the Psalms as, as touching on those things we all have in common. If we are messed up, so is everybody else. And no matter what they look like or where they've come from, they may process these things differently, but there are common emotions, common experiences. And don't you think it's at the moment when we start sharing those deepest feelings that the diversity doesn't seem to matter so much anymore? If anything, it's something to learn from rather than be afraid of. Terry. I find the presentation of people who are flawed and who struggled in the Bible encouraging because that means that the heroes of the Bible are not presented to us as an unattainable position or as an unattainable attitude. It's presented in a way that tells us what Iris said, everyone is on the same level, feeling the same emotions, having the same struggles. So I think it's encouraging that we're not given an unattainable goal. All right. Thank you. Bobby Joe. I find that we often look back with nostalgia to better years, better behavior, better relationship of the past. And it's so easy to fall into a temptation if only I had been back then, I would feel differently, be able to process this better or whatever. And I think that realizing how the past generations have felt the same way we do gives us a clear understanding that God is after a relationship with us, not after a behavior outcome, but a relationship walking with him through our lifetime and coming closer to him. That is his invitation to us. And I think the Psalms really shows that, that it's about a relationship and we can all participate in that invitation in our own personalities, in our own times, in our own flawed ways. And it's valid to him and worthwhile to him. 
Well, I'm very glad that Arthur has raised his hand now because I think sometimes people feel like it's women that are more in touch with their feelings than men. So Arthur, I'd love to hear your response to these same questions. I'm reading from Psalm 22, verse 1. For the music director to the tune door of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan, asking for help? Then I marvel at how when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he seems to say the very same words. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So when we are speaking about emotions, about how all these people within the Bible were able to express their emotions, then I see Jesus himself on the cross doing the same. Then maybe in the, in the book of Hebrews, we are told that he is very familiar to our weaknesses because he was also tempted yet without sin. Then it gives me a hope to say, on those days when I'm at my lowest and I'm also struggling to find God and I'm asking, my God, my God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? I know David also felt the same. And Jesus on the cross could relate to the way I'm feeling. So it's part of the human experiences that we sometimes get to points where we feel like we can't sense God's presence in our situation. In responding to what you said, Arthur, I do find it fascinating that two of the Gospels, Mark and John, express quite a bit of emotion in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is quite emotional in Mark and in John, particularly in Mark. But in Matthew and Luke, some of those same references are deleted. Same story, but absent the emotion. Like when the disciples prevented children from coming to Jesus, the Greek of Mark says basically Jesus was spitting bullets. <laughs> he was absolutely furious with the disciples. Matthew and Luke just leave that out. They just tell the story without any emotional input from Jesus. So I think we're not the only ones to struggle with the Psalms. You know, there are Psalms that are very difficult for us to really process, especially in a public way. And I think the writers of the Gospels approach that a bit differently among themselves as well. Julie? I'm just realizing as I look at this and remember my experiences with the Psalms that not only do they express my emotions that are negative or positive at different times, but the psalmists, the various ones that wrote, seem to put the context of these emotions in the context of the great controversy, of this bigger theme that's going on. So the happy, joyful ones put you in a mode where you're thinking of the eternal kingdom many times. I mean, things like, you know, I long to be in your sanctuary. I long to live there all the time. That kind of idea that I'm going to be just be there all the time in God's sanctuary isn't something that sounds very exciting here on this earth. But when you think about that in the context of heaven, it's quite beautiful. And it helps me when I'm dealing with these struggles to see that my struggles are not just now. They're not just these little things like, oh, I'm disappointed because my work didn't turn out the way I wanted or something. It's actually a part of a much bigger picture of the struggles that we are walking through with God as we move towards a heavenly kingdom. And we get through this whole time period where God is still being vindicated in the sense that there's all these negative things happening because we still have to finish the great controversy. Ellen White actually addresses this issue pretty directly. And you'll find that in Testimonies, Volume 4, pages 9 to 11. And the easy way to remember that is just those are the opening pages of the content of Volume 4 of the Testimonies. And there's a quotation there. The whole thing, those three pages are top 10, as far as I'm concerned. Of all the, the things that Ellen White ever wrote, those three pages are top 10, without question, along with some of the opening chapters of Ministry of Healing and so on. Listen to this. Men whom God favored and to whom he entrusted great responsibilities were sometimes overcome by temptation and committed sins, even as we of the present day strive, waver, and frequently fall into error. But it is encouraging to our desponding hearts to know that through God's grace they could gain fresh vigor to again rise above their evil natures. And remembering this, we are ready to renew the conflict ourselves. And so in Ellen White's approach to these kinds of things, she felt that these were tremendously encouraging, that we can connect 
with biblical writers who made mistakes and see what God did with their lives in spite of those mistakes, after those mistakes, amazing things still happen. So that gives us the courage to not give up, to try and try again. All right, let's go to number five. It says, what different types of psalms have you noticed? I think we've talked about that a little, and you're welcome to bring in anything that we haven't covered yet that you have observed. And I suggested do an internet search for the characteristics of Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry isn't based on rhyme, so what is it that makes Hebrew poetry poetry? So let me talk about that a little bit, and feel free to offer a comment along the way if you are moved to do that. So different types of psalms. There are psalms that praise and magnify God, and those are the ones that are often used in worship. Then there's thanksgiving psalms, which are expressing gratitude to God. And I've often mentioned that spending some time every day being thankful to God is very important. And if you don't know of anything to be thankful about, get out of the dictionary. And on any page of the dictionary, you'll find at least three things you haven't thanked God for, but that you've received from him. And I've often used the illustration on one page of the dictionary, you'll find apes, apples, apricots. These are all things that God made for us to enjoy. And maybe we haven't thanked him for. You see, so Psalms of Thanksgiving are picking out specific things that the psalmist realizes he or she owes to God. Then there's the Psalms of Lament. And these are the ones that bemoan a very tough situation. Lesson two will focus on these. So we'll get to that in more detail. But these are often cries of deliverance or just complaints. And then there's wisdom psalms, which are sort of guidance for everyday living. For uh, here's what the right thing to do is. So there's wisdom psalms, and they're probably more like Proverbs than psalms. Then there's the royal psalms where you're praising God for his government, God's government. And these royal psalms often point to the Messiah. So royal psalms play an important role. Then there's the historical psalms. There are several that review the history of Israel and give an outline of events and maybe sometimes draw lessons from that. Then there's the penitential psalms where someone is repenting and everyone knows I think Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God, you know, have mercy on me, and so on. And then you have the pilgrimage psalms. I mentioned the songs of ascent as people were marching to Jerusalem for the Passover or for the Feast of Tabernacles. They would sing the songs of ascent. And then the ones that we're probably least comfortable with are the imprecatory psalms. And these are the ones that basically say, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. Many people feel they have no place in the Bible, but God placed them there. And so dealing with the imprecatory psalms is part of a deeper picture of what God is like. All right, we have a couple of hands here. First of all, I'll go to Alyssa. Well, John, what is Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. Uh-huh. What category does that fall into? As you were enumerating mm-hmm. them, I didn't see a good match with any You'd of them. You call that one of the shepherd psalms. Uh (laughs) uh-huh you see these categories aren't fixed or anything it's just recognizing that there's a big variety yeah i have to think about that some more it might fit into the 10 i think or nine that i shared with you yeah the lord is my shepherd i shall not want i suppose that would be more of a praise psalm but it does have a sense of appeal and threat you know a bit like the laments and then at the end this kind of a triumph that comes out I have found through my experience that that psalm has universal appeal, Mm -hmm. at least to Americans or people from American culture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a very powerful psalm that I'm not sure what is happening there with the person in the psalm and the Holy Spirit. I only know that that psalm has such powerful universal appeal that I would never hesitate to use it in lots of situations, especially when people are, let's say, suffering a lot, or maybe even dying. Maybe you've heard of the inner city version, the Lord is my probation officer. (laughs) 
because that's a concept that's much easier to relate to than the shepherd yes. uh, concept as well. Larry. I remember when I started reading the Psalms in more fluid translations, what I found stunning was that the amount of honesty for vengeance and the honesty for praise and prayer and glory to God, which came from the same person. And then this person is also later referred to as the man after God's own heart, which opens up a way of thinking that what God is really looking for is people who are honest with who they are. Because if I'm not honest with who I am and you and I sit down to have a conversation, I'm going to be very guarded in what I allow you to see. And if I'm coming to you for help and counseling, there's a limit to what you can offer me if I'm not willing to acknowledge who I am and what I am. Well, and what I'm thinking about listening to you, Larry, is the idea, would we all agree that God is fully aware of all of our thoughts, all of our experiences, all of our feelings? And if that's the case, the more comprehensively we can express all of the things that we're experiencing and feeling and thinking to the degree that we can, we are more and more like God. If we are in touch with our thoughts, in touch with our feelings, in touch with our experiences, and that's the goal of the best types of counseling as well, is to help a person articulate the things that they won't even say to themselves. And you become a more whole human being when you're fully aware of your thoughts and feelings and experiences. What seems evident is that above all other things, God seems to prize authenticity. I think one of the challenges of operating within a church, a church is a wonderful tool in God's hands. God can accomplish amazing things. I mean, just look at Loma Linda as an example. The thousands of lives that are saved each year. When you think of the hundreds of young adults who got heart transplants as infants and would not have been alive at the age of one if they had not. And that was invented at Loma Linda, Seventh-day Adventist institution by a practicing Seventh-day Adventist. I mean, God can use an organization like that to do some amazing things. One of the challenges, though, is in protecting the institution. We often become tempted to be other than authentic ourselves. And God seems to prize authenticity above all else. Because what else did David have? He's a mess. Okay. You read the story of David. He's a bad parent. He's a bad husband. What is it that he's not good at except killing people? But one thing he was very good at that is expressed in these Psalms is authenticity. He could express his deepest emotions. And he could do that publicly. And that's pretty amazing. And God seems to gravitate to people like that. Moses. And Abraham told God off to his face. And God says, <laughs> yep, they're my friends. Yeah, that's what friends do. Wow. So, I mean, you know, there's no Bible text that says, I am the authentic one. Uh, or maybe when it talks about truth, the Hebrew word for truth and authenticity is probably pretty close. But it's, there's no text that in English you know, just spells that out. But as you get to know God, through the way God deals with people, authenticity seems to be deeply, deeply prized by God, perhaps above all other values. All right, let's talk a little bit about Hebrew poetry before we close. Hebrew poetry is different from English. The big characteristic of English poetry is rhyme, where you have certain words that sound the same when they come to an end. Hebrew poetry is not rhyme-dependent. But the key element of Hebrew poetry is parallelism of thought, that two ideas are held side by side. They don't need to say the same words. They don't need to rhyme with each other. But two ideas are held side by side. And just to illustrate that, would you go to Psalm 103 and verse 1? And this time we're not interested so much in the prescript as in the content of verse 1 itself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. All right. In my translation, it says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. 
There's a couple things going on there. First of all, the parallels. You notice, praise the Lord, praise his holy name. Same idea, but expressed in different words. The Hebrews loved that. And then, oh, my soul is parallel to all my inmost being. So here, soul is not the whole person, but it's all as inward thoughts and feelings. The one is more figurative, the other is a little more explicit. And so in the Hebrew poetry, this parallelism going back and forth is perhaps the major characteristic of Hebrew poetry. There is rhythm, and that one you can't translate. You can translate the parallelisms into English, but you can't translate the rhythm in the Hebrew, you know, da-da, 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 da-da. There's a certain rhythm in Hebrew poetry, and in fact, the funeral poems are in what is called by Hebrew scholars the kina meter. And it's like three beats followed by two. It's like things are going downhill. You know, dun-dun-dun, and then dun-dun. And the Hebrews experience that as sadness, as things going downhill, etc. So you have the rhythm combining with the parallelism to be absolutely delightful, but you can only experience that fully in the Hebrew itself. Hebrew poetry uses a lot of figurative language, things that would delight the senses. For example, it speaks of the apple of his eye. We are the apple of God's eye. All right, now that doesn't make any sense literally, okay? But it's just trying to see the apple that you see in the grocery store, and it's shined up, and the color is just so beautiful, and you can almost hear the crunch and taste the squirt of juice when you buy it into it just by looking at it. You see the apple of the eye. What a delight. What a joy is figurative language. Then under his wings is another one. God is not a hen. We are not chickens, okay? But the kind of shelter that the little ones have under the wings of the mother is a way of expressing relationship with God. Another one is merism, which is using a part for the whole. And one example of that is Psalm 88 and verse 1. Again, more interested in the content this time than in the prescript. Psalm 88, 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, when at night, I cry out in your presence. All right. That's interesting because I think the original says day and night, but your translation was a little different. Let's see. My NIV says, Oh Lord, the God who saves me day and night, I cry out before you. Is that expressed in your translation, Terry? In verse two, let my prayer come before you, incline your ear to my cry. Now, would you read verse one again? O Lord, God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence. Interesting. Okay. Because in the original, I understand it's day and night. In other words, day and night is, I'm constantly doing it. In the night would mean, you know, sort of in the depressive times, you would say this, but day and night means I never stop. But anyway, I'll check that on the original, but translations sometimes have reasons for not bringing out all the detail. All right, so merism is the idea of using a part for the whole. So if you're saying day and night, I'm doing this, it's another way of saying I never stop. I'm doing this all the time. And then there's word plays. I mentioned the puns. Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5. Psalm 96, and verses 4 and 5. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. All right. In English, that's impressive language, but it's not able to grasp the fact that the Hebrew word for God and the Hebrew word for idol sounds a lot the same, sounds very similar. So God in Psalm 96 is Elohe, and idols are Elohim. So as you're going through the psalm, the parallel words, Elohe, Elohim, the gods of the pagans are idols, you see. But they're very similar. It's the idea the idol represents to someone what God is, and yet it's not God. It's not even close. So in Hebrew poetry, you'll often have word plays like that between different words that sound in a similar way. And then, of course, there's that famous word, Selah. I remember as a child, you know, reading through the Psalms and saying, Selah, I have no idea what that is. 
but it's there, so I have to read it and what is going on. And I don't think we're 100% sure, but generally the scholarly impression is that the sila is an interlude. It's announcing an interlude. This is where the singing breaks off, and now you have an instrumental part of it. Like sometimes in a church that has a nice fancy organ, you'll sing three verses of the hymn, and then the organist will play the equivalent of another verse ranging all over the keyboard and stuff, and then coming back to a grand finale in the fourth verse of the hymn. So the sila in Hebrew seems to express something like that. All right, let me go to number seven. It says, the world of the Psalms is totally God-centered. The psalmist sought to submit all life experiences, positive, negative, happy, and sad, to God in prayer. That means, in a real sense, the Psalms are worship from beginning to end. That was true for individual Israelites and for the community as a whole. All of Israel's experience was meant to be a form of worship. God was understood to be both far and near, everywhere at once, yet located in the temple, hidden, yet disclosed. I don't want you to miss this one little piece here. All of Israel's experience was meant to be a form of worship. In other words, that walking with God becomes something we are so used to that when we're walking along the road, when we're taking a ride on a bus or a subway, we're driving somewhere, all of life's experience, playing with the grandchildren, all of that experiences can be a form of worship in the ultimate sense of things. And a question to ponder, you can respond if you would like. Why do you think the Bible so often portrays God in terms of paradoxes and tensions between opposites? So why is God often portrayed, as it notes here, He's everywhere at once, and yet located in the temple. He's far, and he's near. He's hidden, yet disclosed. Daniel. Because that's the nature of life after the fall. You can't just express it in one set of emotions, one set of experience. So sometimes it's like this, sometimes it's like that. Mm. And if you want to portray the complexity and the entirety of life, you need more than just a positive, uplifting metaphors. You need to face the reality that sometimes it's down. Sometimes it's a complaint. I know it's not supposed to be like this, but this is what my life looks like. And I'm sure you know it, but let me bring it to you. And that's the value of the Psalms. And as it was mentioned before, that some of them are not used very much in the corporate experience. And that's the loss, because so many psalms are psalms of complaint. And if you had a bad week, or you are facing serious difficulties in your life, in your family, and you come to the church on Sabbath morning, and all you hear are the psalms of orientation, how great and wonderful everything is, and God is great, etc., it's not very helpful to you. And so that's why we have this enormous variety. Mm. And you remind me that one of the great scholarly summaries of the New Testament is that it addresses the now and the not yet. There's a tension between the things we can experience of God now, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. And yet all of that is happening in the context of an old age that is dragging us down. Our bodies are not as capable as they used to be, and we all have a sense of not being the ideal. And there's a tension between the absolute yes that we have in Christ, and at the same time, the struggle we have to make it real. Bob Kern? It seems to me that one of the reasons that all these tensions are there is to directly refute some of Satan's arguments about God. Satan likes to take truisms and twist them just ever so slightly that it now becomes false. And I think by arguing both sides of any particular issue, what God is doing is showing you, yeah, there's more than one way of looking at this. And these might be the limits of the way of looking at it. And something that goes beyond that one way or the other, well, that's not true. One definition of heresy is truth out of balance. That it's saying something that's important, but it's not a balanced. It's not seeing sometimes the other side. Bobby Joe? 
I think essentially it's saying that worship is not exclusively an act of devotion in a specific place within a certain hour, holding a specific posture. Worship is an act of a life. And I think that's why we had as one of the texts to look up 2 Samuel 23 or so. And if I summarize it, when David is looking back on his life, he comments that he, meaning the king himself, must have respect for God when he rules, then his life will be like the light of morning at sunrise. In other words, a life well lived is one of the strongest comments on God's character. So worship towards God is not just about checking off a list of right doing. It's a life well lived. And I think the Psalms brings that out by these conflicting emotions, conflicting paradoxes of different emotions and different feelings that the author is feeling in certain circumstances. We use a Loma Linda expression, this would be whole person spirituality. We often talk about whole person care, healing the entire person, but whole person spirituality is one that is as robust walking down the street as it is in the private chamber or in the worship hall. Number eight, and we'll come back to Second Samuel if we have the time. I think I would like to close with that, but this is an important background piece for the entire quarter. It says, most of the Psalms are associated with the time of David and the early monarchy. But the collection continued to grow after that time and may have been placed in the form we know today by Ezra around 450 BC. See Ezra 7. These would have been collected in service of the new temple that had been established after the return from the Babylonian exile. So the suggestion is that earlier book of the Psalms, perhaps in the time of David and Solomon, would have included many of the Psalms that are there, perhaps most of them. But when they returned from Babylon, there was a need to have for a new hymn book, and it would have included songs that were not only 500 years old, but some more recent ones as well. Let's read Ezra 7, verses 6 to 10, and just comment on it briefly before we draw to a close. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants also went up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. They came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, the journey up from Babylon was begun, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the gracious hand of his God was upon him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. Yeah, I think there's a lot of travel itinerary and things like that in there, but the part that I particularly want to notice is in verse 7 that Ezra didn't come by himself, but he brought with him priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers of the temple, and other temple servants. In other words, in Babylon, they had continued some of the professions that they'd had in Israel. Remember, they were in Babylon 70 years. So these are not the ones that left Israel to Babylon. These are their children and their grandchildren. But it seems they continued some of these professions of temple servant, of singers, of Levites, etc. And when Ezra was coming, he says, you know, we've got a temple there that's understaffed. Can I encourage some of you to invest your lives in what you were always designed to do, is to be God's person within the worship context of the temple. So that is in the Bible, the most likely place where you might have collected a new hymn book, and that Ezra being an inspired writer of the Bible, you know, his collection would then be seen also as scripture. So that's a scholarly opinion, but there's evidence that some of the Psalms reflect a later situation than the time of David and Solomon, and that would help to explain that, just as the new Seventh-day Adventist hymnal included a number of hymns that were written specifically for it. They were brand new. Uh, others are classics going all the way back to the second century. So 
a hymn book is sort of a dynamic kind of thing from generation to generation. All right, closing up here, 2 Samuel 23. And the lesson points out that there are plenty of psalms that are not in the psalms. In other words, the songbook called the psalms is not the limit of the songs in the Bible. There are many songs outside the psalms in the Bible. One of them would be the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5, which we won't look at now. But let's look at 2 Samuel 23, which would probably be the last psalm of David. And let's read verses 1 to 4. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, son of Jesse, the oracle of the man whom God exalted, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the favorite of the strong one of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His word is upon my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. All right. So here David sings his last song, his last composition. And the piece that I want you to particularly notice is that David doesn't say, I wrote this. He's not talking about his composition, but he's saying, the Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me. All right. So the content of this song, David was saying, this song came from God. So when you're dealing with the Psalms, some of them are an expression of human emotion, often of things that you say, God would never have said that. But in this psalm, David says, the Lord was speaking through me. This psalm was written to you. And so the concept of inspiration includes poetry. It includes song. It's part of God's comprehensive personality of which all of us are a small and faint reflection. Let me close with one more text, Romans 8, verses 26 to 27, because it has a lot of similarities to 2 Samuel 23, Romans 8 and verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's a fascinating thing. David says the Psalms that he sang there on that occasion came from God. He felt inspired by the very words of God as he began to sing that song. And here it tells us that that's not limited to Bible writers, but the Holy Spirit is willing to inspire everything that we pray. And this is an important reminder for me. Sometimes when you kneel down to pray, or when you do it in the context of everyday life, even with your eyes closed or even eyes open, you're sending up a prayer to God like Nehemiah once did. In whatever context, we are not limited to what we can say, to what we can come up with, but to perhaps at the beginning of each prayer, lay ourselves open to God and say, if there's something I need to pray about that I don't even know right now, Lord, bring it to me. And I was very impressed with the idea that we can all take advantage of the Holy Spirit's illumination, even inspiration, if you want to call it that. Prayer is so important to God that he wants it to be a two-way street, not just something coming out of our heads. Daniel. I can understand why some people like to pray the Psalms, because they feel that somebody else already expressed what I am feeling now with words that probably I would not be able to put it into those words. Yet what you are saying and the text in Romans shows that God appreciates what we say to him, even though the language is, might not be as poetic, the choice of words so fluent or smooth, but the fact that he's working with his spirit on us and that expression of our state of mind, emotions, uh, spiritual experiences, etc. It's as precious to him as something that David penned or created millennia ago. It's an incredibly encouraging and inspiring 
thought. Thank you, Daniel. And I think that's a good place for us to draw to a close. Good last words. So let's pray. And I'll take a second just to pause at the beginning. And let's all invite God to tune our hearts to his praise. Lord, we have been challenged today by the Psalms. They're different from what we usually do. Uh, They're unlike many of the other scriptures, yet they are as much a part of your intention and purpose for the word as anything else. We're grateful to have a clearer picture of you, but also grateful to have a clearer picture of ourselves. And we live in the now and the not yet. We live in the tension between the joys of eternity and the sorrows of this life. And I pray that as we make our way toward your kingdom, you would be with us, opening our hearts and minds to you every day and in every place. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, We read a psalm where it talked about day and night, and the scripture reading didn't have it. And so I went back during the break to the Hebrew and so forth. And the day and night is there in the Hebrew. Seven of the eight most used translations all have day and night, but the new revised standard does not. And there is just a touch of ambiguity in the Hebrew, so it's not a bad translation. It was simply noticing the Hebrew wasn't doing the typical day and night thing there. But the Septuagint, the Greek, is absolutely typical. Day and night, I cry out to you. So from the Septuagint, we gain the confidence that the day and night is the best way to read it. But there was just enough ambiguity that the NRSV chose to not express it in quite the way that I would have. So just a clarification, when the question came up, I wasn't sure exactly how to respond.